0: We're in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 1. Um, it is, it's basketball season right now, and so um, the Highlights Sports Center is filled with dramatic basketball endings, buzzer beaters, and just comeback stories, and it got me thinking of perhaps the greatest basketball comeback in the history of sports. It's going to turn 40 years old next year. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. You're talking about, I'm talking about Teen Wolf when Michael J. Fox... Wins the basketball game at the end. you got to be a certain age to get that joke. Um, That movie came out in 1985, y'all. 1985, it'll be 40 next year. Teen Wolf is a weird movie. Can we just admit that together? Uh, The premise is that there's a a teenage boy who goes to high school who discovers that when he gets angry or upset or or his emotions kind of rise, he turns into a wolf. Okay, that's weird, uh, and and so he discovers this um, on accident, and his, he has a nice moment with his dad, where his dad says, "Hey, me too," and it's it's sweet, uh, and and it, this this the 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 claws start growing, the hair comes out when he's upset or angry, and this happens, of course, at inopportune moments, you can imagine, uh, and what happens is through the course of the movie, as people start to realize who this guy is, who Michael J. Fox's character really is, that he's uh, secretly a wolf underneath his teen persona, uh, they begin to treat him differently. They begin to interact with him differently, which I think you would too if you knew somebody uh, that you made upset would turn into a wolf and just attack you at any moment if you made them angry. I don't want to hear any comments about your marriage here. Let's just save that. Different, different time. But what's happen- What happens in the movie is people's interaction with the teen wolf, uh, change once they realize who he truly is and how he truly operates and what he's truly like. And we're looking this morning at uh, another picture of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, uh, and it's going to help us see a little bit more clearly who Jesus is and what he's like. And I've got good news. He's not a wolf. He doesn't turn into someone who's going to attack you, but he does surprise us sometimes in what he's like and how he reacts to people and how he interacts with people. And our passage this morning will show us that. And I'm convinced that by understanding Jesus more clearly, by seeing who he is more clearly, we'll interact with him correctly. And our relationship with him will be better for it. And so I just want to encourage you with a few things that um, we said a couple of weeks ago when we started this series. Remember, the Gospel of Mark is trying to show us who Jesus is by what he does more than by what Jesus says. And so Mark's gospel is action-oriented. It's interested in showing us Jesus' movements, Jesus' habits, Jesus' perspective. And there's a lot less dialogue in this gospel than there is in others. And Mark, the author of this gospel, he really believes that actions speak louder than words. And so he's trying to show us Jesus' actions. And in today's passage, we're going to see more of the building blocks. This is still chapter one, so we're going to see more of the foundational building blocks for Jesus' ministry, how he approaches his ministry. And so what I hope that we'll see is Jesus' methods, Jesus' approach to ministry, and that's going to teach us who Jesus is, which then helps us make sure that we can connect with him rightly. And so let's look at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to begin in verse 29 of chapter one and read all the way to the end of the chapter this is what the gospel says. It says, Immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother in law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and they said, everyone's looking for you. Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 40, it says, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But instead, go and show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself, cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he was out in desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. I thank you for your word. I pray that you help us to see your son Jesus clearly in this text. And then, Lord, would you help us, as a result of that, to draw near to him. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to see three things this morning about the way Jesus ministers to people, the way Jesus approaches his ministry assignment. And the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus ministers with power. Jesus ministers with power. The first thing that becomes abundantly clear when you read this is that Jesus is operating with a a measure of power and authority that nobody has ever seen. And we saw this a little bit last week, you'll remember, right? When, when he's healing uh, the, the man in the synagogue and he's teaching, it says, and he says he taught with authority and he healed with authority, so much so that people were taken aback by it. And they said, wow, this guy has a kind of authority that I've never seen before. And now he walks into Peter's house and he finds Peter's mother in law near death, it seems like, with a fever. And with just a touch of his hand, she's healed so totally and completely healed that she gets up and starts, I don't know, making a charcuterie board or something. I mean, she just gets up and gets to work, it says. This is, this, this, it's, the, the healing he does here is total, it's complete, it's instantaneous. Like, there's, there's no, like, halfway to this. Jesus just does it. Just on, on a moment, just reaching out his hand, touching this lady, and she gets up and is fully back to health and back to life. And it's on the Sabbath day that this healing takes place. We, we know this because previously uh, he was in the synagogue teaching and then he went to uh, Peter's house after that. Uh, and it says at sundown, which is, they, they waited till sundown because as the Sabbath ended at sundown, people started bringing their sick and demon-possessed friends and relatives to Jesus. And there's this crowd that gathers outside of Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house, uh, of just people who are just clamoring to see Jesus So that he might heal their friends or family the way he healed the man that they had heard about in the synagogue. And there's this kind of, I don't know, there's there's a buzz, there's an energy, there's an uproar about this man, Jesus, who's shown up in this town of Capernaum, who has this power to heal in such a way that no one has ever seen before. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus' power is total and complete, Here's what's interesting. Jesus is healing people both of their physical ailments as well as their spiritual ailments as well. He's he's healing diseases and and, and, and fixing people in that department, but he's also casting out demons. He's he's overcoming people's natural physical uh, maladies, and he's overcoming their, their spiritual bondage as well. And we're meant to see that Jesus has authority that isn't limited to just the physical world or to just the spiritual world, it's total. He has power over everything, over everything that we can see and everything that we can't see. It's important to acknowledge as Christians that a spiritual world exists, okay? Uh, some, some, some people like to pretend or ignore or forget that, that there is a spiritual element to our lives. We're very aware of kind of the physical world, things that we can see, touch, smell, right? But we've got to be just as aware that there's a spiritual element at play at the same exact time. that spiritual element is real, and it has power, uh, and it influences things, it can change things. And this text wants us to know that the authority Jesus has isn't limited to just the physical, and it isn't limited to just the spiritual, but it's total and complete. Jesus is demonstrating this, that there's no limit to his power. That's important to know about Jesus, church. There's no limit to Jesus's power. And the the world that we live in oftentimes wants to box things in or put stuff in a category and say, well, this works for this thing, but it won't work over here. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes we do that with our faith. We'll say, well, faith is just one part of my life, and Jesus has authority over one part of my life. But this text wants us to know that Jesus's power and authority, it stretches to everything. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul summarizes this by saying that by him, he's speaking of Jesus, he says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus' power is total and absolute. Since he created all things, since he holds all things together, he can do what he wants with anything and anyone. What does this mean for us? It means that because Jesus has power over both the physical realm and the spiritual realm, he has power to deal with whatever you're going through as well. There is nothing that our God can't do, amen? There is nothing that he can't heal in your life. There is no spiritual condition that he can't overcome. Some of us like to pretend that there are parts of our life that Jesus can't help with, don't we? You don't have to raise your hand, but you do this, okay? I do this, we all do this. We like to pretend that there are parts of our life that Jesus can't help us with. We'll say Jesus I trust you in most of the areas of my life but this one area it's it's too much and so we won't bring that part to him at all just kind of keep it sequestered off and separate Maybe it's an illness that the doctors have said can't be cured and so you stop praying for Jesus to cure you This is too much it's too hard it's he's never going to do that I've I've prayed too long and it hasn't come true and so I'm just going to I'm going to give up on that area Maybe there's a relationship in your life where the hurt and pain is too much. There's too much brokenness. And so you've just decided, well, it's always gonna be this way. I'm gonna stop working on it. I'm gonna stop praying for it. I'm gonna stop asking for God to move in that relationship. It's too damaged. He can't do it. Maybe you have a sin struggle in your life. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of thing that you know dishonors God and is against God's commandments, but you continue to do it And you used to pray that God would take it away. You used to pray for God to give you victory. You used to pray for God's help in that area, but you've just given up. Well, I'm just always gonna be this way, and so I might as well just ignore it. I wonder if this morning there's not an area in your life where you need Jesus's power to work a miracle. But maybe you've forgotten that he's able. I have good news for you this morning. He is able. Whatever it is you're going through, he is able. If you need help in the physical realm, he is able because he rules over the physical realm. If you need help in your spiritual life, he is able because he rules over the spiritual realm. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper is famous for saying that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine there's not an aspect of your life that Jesus doesn't rule and reign over either. So we serve a Jesus who comes and ministers with power. We should learn from the people of Capernaum who saw Jesus' power and said, I'm going to that guy. This thing that nobody else could fix, he can fix it. I'm going to him. That should be our response as well. Let's go to Jesus' church with our needs. The second thing we see about Jesus' ministry in this passage this morning is that Jesus ministers on the Father's timeline, doesn't he? Jesus works on the Father's timeline. In verse 35, you get to see a little bit about Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father. It says, "Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed." And this text doesn't say it explicitly, but other texts do say it explicitly, and so we can see it here, uh, that I'm convinced that in that communion with God, in that time with the Lord there alone early in the morning, Jesus is getting his marching orders about the timeline that God has him working on. You see these times of prayer throughout this gospel and the other gospel in in Mark, they show up in chapter 6 and in chapter 14, you see Jesus getting alone to go pray to the Father. And it no doubt included hearing from the Father about his plans and his timing for Jesus' ministry. This is not in my notes, and it's not central to this sermon, but I can't pass this moment without saying it. Listen, if Jesus had to get alone with God in the mornings, you probably need to too, don't you? If Jesus had to connect with the Father before he began his day, I would submit to you that it's probably a good idea for you and I to do that as well, okay? Just, just, Just plant that seed there just one more time more about Jesus' timeline and the Father's timeline, you begin to see Jesus' concern for God's timeline in verses 43 and 44. He's healed this leper of his leprosy, and he sends him away, and it says in verse 43 that Jesus sternly charged him, and he sent him away at once, and he said to them, see that you say nothing to anyone, but instead go show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus said, hey, instead of spreading the word about what I've done for you, I want you to try to keep it a secret. Keep it, keep it between me and you. We're out here alone. Just don't tell anybody. Just go show the priest. Follow the, the Levitical rules about uh, healings. When you've been cleansed from leprosy, you had to go show the priest, and the, he, would, he would test and make sure that it was true, and then you could kind of be welcomed back in. Jesus says, go do that. Why does Jesus do that? What's, what's going on here? God has a plan For Jesus that involves Jesus gradually revealing his identity over time. It involves him gradually revealing who he is over time. You see this in Jesus' interactions with his disciples as they begin to learn. They don't always know from the very first day exactly who Jesus is and what his purpose is and how he operates. They learn it over time spent with him, which there's a lesson there for us as well. But God has wants to gradually reveal to the world who Jesus is. And here at the beginning of the ministry, Jesus is kind of withholding some of his identity from the people. You see this again in John chapter 2, right? You remember the story? This is Jesus' first uh, miracle in that gospel. And, and they're, they're at a wedding. Jesus and his, and his mother Mary are at a wedding. And uh, the, they, they run out of wine uh, at this wedding, but the people still want to party. And so uh, Mary looks over at Jesus and goes, Hey, you know, Son of God, can you just fix this, please? And Jesus responds to her in John chapter 2, verse 4. He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does he say next? He says, my hour has not yet come. He says, not the right time yet. Now, I'm not going to make a big splash out of this. And so you see in the gospel, he does this miracle quietly to avoid a big show. And throughout his time on earth, Jesus is unwaveringly committed to the Father's plans, to the Father's timeline. And the result of this is Jesus makes decisions that looks strange to us and look strange to his disciples too. Even this decision to leave Capernaum where all the action is, where the buzz is. Capernaum is a very strategic city. It doesn't make sense if you're trying to make a big splash and get real famous and heal a bunch of people. Capernaum is where you want to be. Jesus says, no, we're, we're going to leave. Actually, I know there's a huge crowd of people that want to see me and hear from me, but we're leaving anyways. It doesn't make sense. He's on his father's timeline. Matt talked earlier about if you've been following Jesus for a little while, you've seen some stuff. And I think one of the hardest things about following Jesus that you learn over time is learning how to trust God's plan and God's timing over your own plan and your own timing, amen? That's hard, isn't it? God's plan never seems to match ours. It never is what we want it to be. When things are good, we want God to slow stuff down. When things are bad, we want God to speed it up, get us out of there. He never quite seems to do what we want him to do, perhaps. God, when are you going to bring healing here? We've been waiting so long. God, why are my kids growing up so fast? Can you slow time down? God, how long are you going to keep me in this job that I hate that's crushing me? God, are you ever going to give me the relationship or friendships that I'm longing for? God, your time is not matching my timeline. Here's the deal. God has a plan, and we usually don't get to see it, but we are called to trust it. Here's why. Isaiah 55, I told you last week, I don't know if you were listening last week, but I told you last week, Isaiah 55 is awesome. It's an incredible chapter. So I'm back again with another quote from Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine says this. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Part of being our heavenly father is seeing what we can't see and guiding us anyways. Yesterday afternoon, I took my kids to a playground, my two older kids, to a playground. They're six and nine years old. It was like the only break in the day where it wasn't frigid. You could actually be outside. So we're like, we're going outside. So I took them to the playground any parent knows this, this routine, the worst part about going to the playground is leaving the playground, amen, right, because no matter what, there's, there's different strategies for how you get your kids to leave the playground, right, there's, there's what I call the, the old school parenting strategy, right, and that's just when you decide it's time to leave, you yell at your kids, come on, we're leaving, and they may cry, but you don't care because you're old school, and you just throw them in the car and you just leave, the strategy one, Second strategy we might call proactive parenting, okay? This is you give your kids a five-minute warning. Hey, in five minutes, we're leaving. Then you give them the three-minute warning. Three minutes, kids, just, this is your last chance on the monkey bars. You give them a one-minute warning. One, one minute, we're leaving. And then when the time finally comes, they, in perfect peace and harmony, harmony walk nicely to the car, right? <laughs> Doesn't work like that for you guys, okay? Option three is what I call bad parenting, It's where you yell, it's time to go. And they whine, and so you say, okay, five more minutes. And then five minutes pass, you say, it's time to go. And they whine, and you say, okay, five more minutes. And by the end of the day, the kid is in charge and you are not, and you're asking the kid, can we go home now, you know? (laughs) We're having a parenting uh, retreat, March the 1st and the 2nd. If you'd like to come to that, I'll tell you which of these is the best option. (laughs) Yesterday, when we went to leave the playground, they didn't wanna leave. But there was a plan, there was a timeline, and what the kids didn't know that me as the dad did know is that there was an order to the rest of the day. We needed to leave the playground by four o'clock because at 4.30 there's a football game on that I wanted to watch. (laughs) I couldn't tell them that, right? They also didn't know that I needed, before the sun went down, to change the, the floodlights. On the, I had to get up on the ladder and change the floodlights at the house. And I needed to know I needed to get the chicken on the grill by 5.45 so that we could eat by 6.15, so that we could clean up by 6.45, so that you've got bath time by 7.15, so that you can be in bed by 8. Right? There's an order to these things. In the playground, my kids on the swing, is it going to help for me to walk them through all of that? Could their little brains even co- comprehend it? Would they even have cared? No, of course not. But as the dad, it's my job to say, "Hey, I've got a timeline to this, and I need you guys to stay on it. You don't know all the why, so you don't know all the hows. But I need you to just trust me." In a very similar way, our call as followers of Jesus, as Christians, is to look to our heavenly Father and say, "This doesn't make sense to me. I want more time on the playground." but we're going to trust our Heavenly Father when he says, you don't know the whole scope of this. I'm working a much bigger plan that would blow your mind if you could see even just a fraction of it. Faith in God, church, means having faith in his plan. This means the way he moves or doesn't move or the timing he utilizes, it may not make sense to us, but there are two facts that should give us great peace. Number one, the Lord is in control of everything, as we've already said. And number two, he loves you enough to die for you. And so that means if you have those two pieces of information, you don't need the rest, right? You can trust him with the rest because I know he loves me enough to die and I know he's in control of everything, so I'm gonna follow that guy. This is what the Father asked from us, would you trust me with my timeline? Lastly, Jesus comes to minister to all people. Jesus ministers to all people. In verse 38, he says he's got to leave Capernaum to go to these other towns. He's got more people he wants to share the gospel with. In verse 40, we see this encounter with a man with leprosy. It's just worth reading the encounter again. The leper comes to him, imploring him, and kneeling, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. This leper understands God's timing. Moved with pity, he, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing that which Moses commanded for proof. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter." Some things to notice here. First, leprosy is an awful disease. It creates boils and just a discoloration of your skin. It was considered a death sentence in that time. It was incurable. Uh, you couldn't be healed from it. It was just, you, you, and, and because of it, you were considered ceremonially unclean by Jewish law and custom. And so as a result, you had to be cast out of the city. You couldn't be in amongst everybody else. You had to be sent out into the wilderness, out of the city limits, out of the city gates, and you had to live out on your own with no job, limited relationships. You were totally reliant on people's charity to survive. Now just put yourself in this guy's shoes, this leper's shoes. Can you imagine what his life was like, lonely? Can you imagine living a life where everyone is repulsed by the side of you? Or, or, or people don't even want to make eye contact because you're afraid they're, they're afraid going to ask them for something? This is this man's existence for who knows how long, perhaps years. And then Jesus comes up. And this man clearly humbled, clearly aware of what Jesus can do, but also probably carrying a decent amount of shame. He kneels before Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, in his compassion and his kindness, says, I am willing Be clean. And he doesn't just say the words. We sang earlier just one word, right? He doesn't just do that, but he gives him just one touch as well. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches this man with leprosy. This is a huge deal. This man probably hasn't been touched in years. Not a high five, not a handshake, not a hug. And yet Jesus says, I'm willing. I'm not scared of you. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not grossed out by you. I will touch you. Jesus came to rescue not just the rich, not just the talented, not just the beautiful, not just the useful, not just the clean, not just the faithful. Jesus came to rescue all of us. He came to rescue those of us who are constant screw-ups. He came to rescue uh, those of us who are are not lovely. He came to rescue those of us that our society says are outcasts. He came to rescue those of us who aren't clean. Jesus says, I'm coming for you. And not only will I come for you, but I'm gonna reach out my hand and I wanna connect with you in a way that you've never connected with anyone before. Church, Jesus came for all people and especially the outcasts. That has some real implications for us as Christians and for us as a church. First, as we think about how we minister to other people and how we reach out to other people, we've got to be a church whose doors are flung wide for all people, amen? So that all people, any and all, no matter what they're dealing with, no matter what they're going through, no matter what makes them an outcast in the society, they might encounter the Jesus that says, I love you and I want you. It's gotta be our posture as a church. But it also means, and I venture a guess, that there's some of us in this room tonight or this morning who, who maybe think Jesus doesn't want you to because you're the outcast, you're the gross one, you're the unclean person, you're the constant screw-up. This text proves to us that Jesus wants you as well. And if this story, the beginning of Jesus' ministry doesn't communicate that to you, the story at the end of Jesus' ministry hopefully What happens at the end of the Gospel of Mark? Jesus goes to a cross and hangs there in your place and mine. This leper that Jesus meets, he lives outside of the city because that's where unclean people had to live. And touching this leper would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish law. There's a transfer that would have taken place. This man's uncleanness would have transferred to Jesus by virtue of, of touch and in this transfer that happens this man is made clean and he's welcomed back into fellowship with the people, he's welcomed back into the city the same thing happens for us at the cross Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf and in so doing he takes the curse of sin, transfers it from us and puts it on himself the curse of sin, you'll remember, is what caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. It's why in the Old Testament, they would send the scapegoat, the lamb, out of the city with the sin once a year. The curse of sin is what keeps, God's, keeps people today outside of the family of God, outside of the kingdom of God, outside of heaven's sin. That curse keeps us out. Jesus goes to us takes that sin upon himself, which is why we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. And in this transfer, our sin to his, we're made clean, we're made whole, we're forgiven, and then we're welcomed back into the family of God. Isn't that good news, church? Jesus has come for all people, and he hasn't just come to teach us a few things. He hasn't just come to give us some pithy sayings. He has come to heal us totally and completely from whatever it is that holds us back. Certainly of physical ailments and struggles, but ultimately of the curse of sin on our life. Jesus takes it upon himself for us. When Jesus says he came to proclaim the gospel to all people, this is the good news that we who were filthy can be made clean by putting Our faith in the Son of God hung on a cross. How does Jesus operate? What's his ministry marked by? What does he do? Jesus comes with power, power over the physical realm, power over the spiritual realm. Jesus comes operating on the Father's timeline. His ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. We're called to trust him. And he comes, not just for the lovely, but for all people, especially the outcasts. And so Jesus comes to us that way, so our response then is to go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his willingness to come to the least of these. And the least of these certainly includes us. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus, each and every one of us is born an outcast is born unclean, is born unable to be in the family of God. And yet Jesus comes out to us, offers us salvation, takes our curse of sin upon himself, gives to us his righteousness so that we may be whole, so that we may be clean, and so that we may spend eternity with him. What a gift, Father. So Lord, as we respond to that good news of the gospel, would you stir our hearts? Would you encourage us? And would you help us come to Jesus who has come for us? In Christ's name, amen.